Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with another interview with Neil Pitts. He is a writer from the UK, um, wrote, a, wrote a book titled Postmodernity and the uh, Creation of the Anthropocene. And we had talked a month or two ago about the book and uh, some of his research. And uh, given the international situation, figured it'd be a good time to discuss kind of how things interplay with uh, the changes going on. So Neil, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Hi there, James, how are you doing? Good. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, uh, tell us about the book and, you know, what motivated you to write the book? Okay, the book is about how the world evolved through different periods of history. So it starts in prehistory with the spread of early humans, and then it explains how the ancient world happened through a series of empires, such as Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then the world came into the Middle Ages, Christianity and Islam became the big forces in East and West uh, before the Mongols and the Turks pushed the Europeans really into the Americas and then they, they took over the Americas starting with the Spanish and Portuguese empires and then the British and French and, um, and Dutch Golden Age which happened in amongst all of that. Um, so you're looking at the way the, the European world economy probably about 1600 to 1900 then created the um, the rise of America and the way that the modern period happened then collapsed into World War One and World War Two, and then out of that emerged the postmodern period. So there you've got your postmodernity. And what the book's about is about now, eventually, I suppose, we have to move into a new period at some point. And scientists are talking about the Anthropocene as being the name for the new period. So it's all about that. And I'm giving updates on my YouTube channel and, um, and interviews to get feedback from, from people on what's happening today. So in the last interview, we, we talked about the, the evolving structure of civilization. So this interview, um, I'd like to get more into current affairs. Well, we have a lot to, uh, a lot to cover. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the Russians, led by Putin, have invaded the Ukraine, and um, you know the world is basically unified behind supporting the Ukraine, except for I think the one standout in not joining that uh, condemnation is uh, China. So, how does this? kind of current crisis play into what you're thinking in terms of the evolution of society and the what it means to be in an Anthropocene world or epoch? Okay, um, well, suddenly we were just hit with it. I mean, I published the book last year and I've done a series of interviews since then. So I was thinking, hmm, how is, you know, how is the situation developing? What I, how I finished the book was, the world basically went onto computers. Um, governments could share complex information. So of course we we're going to avoid something like this happening again. Um, and then all of a sudden, 
there was this this war and for a bit we were just living in the fog of war already because they nobody had any idea what was going on and it took a while for, for information to come out through the news so it after a while it looked like it was actually russia china and india working together to counterbalance us influence this is their side of the story um and to create a kind of a balance of power in the east and the problem with this really is that it's only happening within asia so they don't really care what europeans think about this they claim that russia's been boxed in by nato and so i've had a look at this and i've had a look at some very mature professors who have commented on this um in their own interviews and they said really um it depends on who you apportion the blame to about this because Russia's claiming that NATO promised them that they wouldn't expand in exchange for united Germany. So that's when the reunification of Germany happened. Um, and I think it was President Bush Senior, who was the US president at the time, said, no, okay, we're going to do this deal. And apparently NATO has now expanded all the way across Europe into Turkey. So one whoa, of the- Whoa, 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 whoa. He's up there, Tex. Turkey was a member of NATO well before any of this took place they were a member of nato back in the back in the 60s and the 50s so it's not the expansion to turkey that is at issue here it's the expansion into the uh, baltic states and into eastern europe right well okay but can, can i just finish sure the, i mean the, the, okay the, I, I mean i've looked at this a lot and i i don't really understand how Turkey is in the North Atlantic. I so agree with I you. Think, yeah. So, so in all in all fairness, I, I mean, I've looked at both sides of the story here, and uh, I've also looked at Russia's conduct in this war, and it has doesn't look good. But they're saying that the U.S. was worse in the war against terror, and that 1.2 million died in Iraq in the Iraq invasion. So I'm thinking, okay, so so how has this happened? Okay, now it looks like NATO's expanded to try and contain the rise of China because it's now become the number one communist country. So in doing that, they've kind of completely forgotten about Russia, who they just assume lost the Cold War and that's that and the Soviet Union's gone and it's all over. So they've kind of pushing on kind of like half the planet really. And what seems to have happened is that it's pushed China away from kind of outright a kind of battle of power between the US and China. It's forced China to do something more constructive and, and start this developmentalist Belt and Road Initiative, which I think is a good thing because it's going to mean that China expands its influence and its investment throughout Southeast Asia and into, into East Africa. So that, that's all been happening. And you know, I can see that there is a, there is a kind of basic polarity re-emerging again between East and West when I think everybody assumed the Cold War had finished. So I've been looking into why this has happened and what it all seems to go back to is a divided UN Security Council, which has existed since the end of World War II. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, um, you know, the goal after World War II in terms of the Security Council was you know, it included the allies, basically, that had won World War II. It really hadn't developed into 
the Cold War really until um, you get to, you know, the um, later 40s. And, you know, you end up with the uh, having to do the Berlin airlift and um, kind of the communist takeovers of governments in Eastern Europe. And yeah. so that created really the, the division where, you know, Churchill basically pronounced a, an iron curtain had fallen across Europe. And yeah, that was 1946. Yeah. And at that point, you have you know, Russia was already a member of the Security Council. And so it became really kind of a, uh, a playground for international politics to be, you know, viewed rather than a way to actually, I mean, I guess it did re resolve conflicts in a way that it did it diplomatically without having to resort to you know, extremes in terms of, you know, World War Three. I mean, over the past, yeah, over the past 50 years, we've had plenty of brush wars and, you know, um, conflicts supported by each side that the other has supported the opposite side. In some ways, Ukraine is kind of in that family just as Afghanistan was. Um, yeah. So, so okay, so I've, I've done some research on what's happening at the UN and, and reasons why reform to the Security Council have not occurred. And that is because, okay, it, con it basically it contains a number of autonomous organizations, which are like the UN Development Programme, the Populations Fund, there's an international labor organization, there's uh, educational, scientific and cultural, there's the World Health Organization, the World Bank, um, Industrial Development Organization and so on. And, and th these are designed to help countries to manage the situation in the form which it exists now. So if you like, the Security Council was set up to avoid World War III because the UN followed from the League of Nations and they saw World War I lead to World War II. So their aim was to immediately take the world away from the pattern of events which dominated the early 20th century. So the avoiding World War III, of course, was the number one prerogative of the UN Security Council because um, they had the nuclear bomb and that, was, that had changed the whole situation to, to total annihilation for everyone. So, it seems like it's the product of that. During the Cold War, this divided Security Council with Russia, China on one side, and then UK, France, and the US on the other, um, with also then 15, sorry, 10 other countries taken from around the world on a rotational basis. This has enabled the superpowers to actually talk to each other during the Cold War. So that possibly has been part of the agenda to avoid World War III. In fact, it, it looks like that's very much deliberate. So really, I mean, what we're questioning here is how is the postmodern, the, the structure of, I mean, if we talk about the word in terms of periods, in terms of um, what we're achieving in each period, um, in terms of what's happening overall in each period, um, then the structure of postmodernity um, has to change again, doesn't it, to solve the, the problem 
of having these countries which are well not only their superpowers but they can also act autonomously and they can also veto the any action that's proposed by the other powers so in this i mean in this case russia objected to um blocked military action in sudan and the military takeover of sudan um the us obviously is complaining about this invasion of the ukraine everybody objected to the us invasion of iraq um it looks like there are two groups now that want reform to the security council and one of these are germany japan south africa canada brazil and turkey who who kind of want to see it for themselves and then on the other hand you've got italy and argentina a part of another group which want nations to be selected on a rotational basis but do you think perhaps taking away the big five taking them out of the picture might lead to a breakdown in relations between the superpowers well Hello? yeah i mean i mean if you've got lithuania telling china what to do and china says no i mean where do we go from there that's the that's the question isn't it well i think it's even a i think it's a deeper question because i think that the conflict that is the at really a question is how how is society best organized and on one side you have basically the democracies of europe the united states and canada and on the other you have autocracies like um russia and china and can those two political philosophies coexist together um in some way huh yeah they're not i mean and and that's the takeover of hong kong was proof that you know china really doesn't have any sort of interest in participating in you know a world order where it has to you know follow directions from from other places so yeah i mean for the long time the 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 idea for china and also for russia was that you know we'll get them involved in the economy and it'll be you know they'll find that it's too costly to be disruptive and they'll come to our side that they'll they'll basically be on their best behavior because they want the benefits of being part of the global economy and i think what we see now is with covid a breakdown in the global economic order because of what's happened in terms of supply chains but also in terms of how countries have responded to it and the fact that there's going to be a lot more onshoring instead of you know what's been occurring in the past in terms of offshoring of jobs i mean it's kind of okay, changed that I, dynamic okay can i look can i just say that um okay so bring coming back to this this polarity between the us and china as you're saying two very different ideologies mm -hmm. i mean could we say that we we live in a world now where there is a kind of natural divide between east and west which we could understand through the way the situation has evolved. 
So for example, when humans evolved out of Africa, they went a bit into Asia and they went a bit into Europe. And then we have these big civilizations in Asia. We had um, the Mesopotamian and we also had the Persian and the beginnings of China. Um, and then in Europe, then we had, it wasn't until the Greeks really that we had a major civilization about 300 BC. So it was all going on in the East uh, to begin with. And then the situation shifted to the West, Greece invaded Persia. So then that all broke down. So then we had on both sides, Rome on one side and China on the other. So then we've, we've got a sort of natural balance of power emerge between East and West after that initial kind of clash. <coughs> so since then, governments, sorry. <coughs> <coughs> Oh, so I have to cough there. Um, since then, governments have been focused on stability. And this is how we can see that people, even in the ancient world, were really quite educated in terms of the way that they understand government and the way societies are run. So, okay, we've got this, this we've still got a separate East and West, and we've got the Roman Empire, which becomes Christian in Europe. And then in the East, we see the appearance of Islam, which even manages to convert the Mongols. And... So we've still, you know, got this, this kind of situation that's going back and forth now between East and West, rather than just a clash between East and West. And then in the modern period, then the Europeans take over the Americas, and this kind of destabilizes the whole of politics, because it means the Europeans now have the advantage of a whole new continent involved in the situation, and they end up controlling large parts of Asia and almost all of Africa, and their industrial um complex evolves earlier much earlier and it's just that then they have a series of wars between themselves and they, this situation breaks down to world war one so then you've got to look at the situation in terms of the way that that led to world war ii and that involved the rise of communism because the the russian revolution towards the end of world war one and you've got this new factor of, of the dividing politics in play so communism in, in Russia really caused fascism in Europe and the whole situation. Um, whoa, whoa. It, communism in Russia yeah. caused fascism in Europe? Yeah, that, they tried that to. Is, that is a far, far stretch. I mean, fascism is, fascism is the opposite of communism, idealistically. Well, yeah, exactly. That was the point. The Russians tried to overthrow the German government using Russian money. And um, if you look at the Spartacist uprising in Berlin in the early 1920s, they had half a million people out in the streets and it forced a negotiation with the government, which broke down and they ended up being shot by paramilitaries. Um, and the ringleaders of that, they knew Lenin and Trotsky and the people in Russia who launched the Russian revolution, but just they were part of the same group. Um, so the rise of fascism established this kind of buffer state in Central Europe between um, the communist, now the communist bloc, and, um, you know, in the West. That's, that's what they were doing there. They were, they were um, kicking out the communists out of Central Europe, basically, because they were, they were going to move the situation back across to the West. So... Um, so are you saying that fascism is a defense against communism? Yeah, fascism arose because of communism. You know, if you think about it, you've got an extreme 
it, it, communism arose as the antithesis of capitalism. So where you've got the Europeans took over the Americas, you've got this, the creation of this great big economy where we need to ship money forward to invest and reinvest in new projects because of all the expansion. But then this expansion led to an uncontrollable oh, kind of, I don't know, some people say it's an exploitation of resources and people and, you know, everything gets carried away. Other people call this progress, that it, it enabled Hmong governments to succeed, it enabled the rise of the middle class to take over in terms of government, whereas before you have the monarchy. So, I mean, this is, you know, 300 years ago. So there isn't, um, it isn't the same world that, we, that we've got now. So with all that happening, that's when Karl Marx proposed that communism was the only solution to the problem, which a lot of workers were suffering from, being exploited, being caught up in the situation. And the this is how the communists developed their ideology from the way the whole situation was evolving. They were saying, look, capitalism is never going to reform. It's incapable of reform. Um, people were calling for a balance of left and right in politics, but it was not possible because of the, not only the industrial expansion in the West, but also the European imperialism, which was, um, pushing itself into Asia and Africa, and well, I think that's that, I th I think that's that's not true because yeah you know communism is Marx wrote based on the idea that you have um, you have this uh, conflict of ideas and a new idea emerges and you know the the reality is that capitalism in a way sows its its own seeds of failure in terms of what it does in terms of the treatment of workers in terms of treatments of the planet i mean i think you see that with what's going on in terms of climate change i mean fossil fuels are really an indictment of what is at the core wrong with an extractive and exploitive economy like capitalism but on the other side, part of that synthesis and part of that evolution is proven by the fact that you see socialism succeed in Europe in terms of providing for workers and yet still having an economy that's still fundamentally based on managed capitalism. So it's not that man capitalism can't be managed, it can be, but you need the people in charge to have some sort of larger ethics than just being ruled by a profit margin. Okay. Um, well, from what I can see from history in the, say the 17, the late 1700s, when you put US independence and the French Revolution, for example, mm. the situation really was that the, the modern capital capitalists, um, the industrialists, the imperialists, they all wanted progress. But modern politics arose to challenge the monarchy. And this became the, the contentious sort of idea. I mean, if you look at the origins of liberalism, it's all about kind of, okay, now let's kind of do more of what we want. And, you know, the less of what we have to do um, less of what we feel that we have to do and, and create time for ourselves, you know, through progress to create social freedom in that way. 
And it's really because of the, the way that the juxtaposition of these ideas arose in the modern, particularly in the late modern period, that the communists started to appear because the socialists were feeling left out. They, they felt that the situation was, was just not going their way at all. And that there was no left in politics. It was all about the right. It was all about the ownership. Um, and, and the conflict really was between the old monarchy and church kind of power and the new rise of the new political and scientific kind of um, establishment. So people on the left began to lean towards communism really since it appeared in, in 1848, because Europe had been through a phase of revolutions um, with the French Revolution, um, started with the US independence really, but then the, the French Revolution triggered a whole wave of um, revolutions all across South America because when Napoleon occupied Spain, all the countries in the Spanish Empire went independent to get away from him. Mm. So um, yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean, you had revolution America. throughout Europe and throughout the eight, 1800s, right? Yeah, right. And yeah, exactly. But the, the whole problem with the structure really was that the monarchies wanted to keep control of Europe. Yeah. And the, the the revolutionaries wanted modern government. So in the end, Marx said, "Look, the only solution to this this problem is going to go on forever unless people decide that they're going to do something completely different." And that's what they created in communism. And it didn't just spontaneously happen in Russia. It happened with the help of the German government um, and a guy who a communist um, friend of Lenin who set up an arms company in Turkey and worked with the Turkish government to persuade the Germans to launch the Bolshevik revolution to assist the Bolshevik revolution in Russia by sending Lenin and his comrades back into Russia um, with a load of arms and money. So that they were ready. If you, if you look at, if you Google the Russian revolution, you think, hang on a minute, where did they get these arms from and the money? And why, why were they in the right position to strike when the government was, was weak? And it's because they were being helped by Germany. Um, who wanted to take them out of World War One? Well, just so, to just to stop you this, there, this, I, just to stop you there, I think you're overplaying the role that Germany played in fostering the Russian Revolution. There's actually a podcast um, um, called Revolutions. Um, I forget the name guy's name, Mike uh, something, and he does an entire series on the Russian Revolution. It's, um, I think it's up to like 90 or 100 episodes at this point, and I've listened to all of them. And, I, you know, he basically using historical sources, historical research, and Germany, other than basically giving uh, Lenin and his people a train ticket to uh, back to Russia, there really wasn't much support that went into that. So I, I don't think you can say that they gave them, you know, a boatload of arms and weapons. I mean, the arms and weapons that existed that helped in terms of the revolution were there because the Russians had been fighting in the war for four or five years. And the, the soldiers were basically tired of dying, you know? And so when okay, and so when the when the communists appealed to end the war, you know they had a they had a ready group of people who were willing to join up with them because they just didn't want to fight in World War II, World War One anymore. That's where yeah, the guns I, came I, from. Yeah, I, I, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I can see that perspective, but if you just Wikipedia it, they also smuggled in arms and money. And, um, and when, the, when Lenin arrived in Moscow, the, the German foreign minister reported back, um, I, I think it was the, the army reported back to the, to the, to, to the government um, to say that he is working according to your wishes. That was the, that was the message that was sent back to the, the German government, that that was their plan to overthrow the Russians. That was, that was the deal that they had. And they did support them with arms and money. You know, I think that, whatever. I, I, I don't think that that's accurate, but, you know, moving on. Okay, well, that, so, so, I mean, but okay. so, so let's, so are you saying that intuitively the idea of communism is a non-starter for the postmodern world? Is that basically well, okay. a dead horse at this point? Is that your contention? Or are we going to move on to a worker's utopia? Okay, what I'm saying is that at the time, the world was faced um, different problems to what we've got now. Mm -hmm. So communism was the idea which provided a solution to for, for many workers that were affected by capitalism but it, it still did not initially take off because of the leverage power uh problem within the system so first of all you've got to get a group of people together secondly you've got to arm them thirdly you've got to fund them and they can't survive long enough as an autonomous unit without that support um to actually create a revolutionary force now, that's the way that they did it in Russia. And so since then, communism has been regarded of a virus by Western governments, in particular the United States, because it makes the situation more complex. If you think about it, you've got this, this idea which has become a country and it's become the Soviet Union now, and it's become obviously communist China as well. And it's growing, it's spreading throughout the world. And we don't really know what it's doing. And we don't really know what's going on with it because these people they believe in what they're doing and they're creating a completely different idea of society than the one that we understand in terms of the way that the judo-christian society evolved through stages in the west and created the middle ages created you know the european empires and then modern capitalism you know this is completely alien to all that and um and as well as that we we kind of don't really know what they are up to because their governments have now become the antithesis of what we can see in the West. And that is really the whole from say like the 1920s through the 30s, through fascism, World War II, through the Cold War, that has been going on all the way now to this relationship between Russia and China because now China's got the top communist country status and Russia it seems is now acting on the side of China rather than the other way around. So rather than just the spread of communism into Southeast Asia, you've got China is now the big kind of superpower and it is huge. It's got cities of 20 million people all over it. It's got, um, you know, it's got 1.4 billion people, which is like more than any other country's ever had. So what they've got going on there must be incredible if you're Chinese and you're living in all this and you're thinking oh this is the best you know this is the best China that we've ever had so 
But they're obviously pushing that situation forward, you know, in the same way that you could imagine the US um, stockbrokers are kind of pushing the US economy forward. Now, China people believe in China just as much as people in the US believe in the US. So this is causing a natural balance of power between East, East and West. Um, but still, you've got this, this I, I think it, not so much the difference between societies, but the complexity in terms of how the whole situation has evolved. And that's what's caused the problem of um, caused the problem of terrorism. It caused the problem, you know, of the not just the different ideologies, but the the, the way that the different ideologies are just simply arise as, as um, a new kind of a new idea that's just incompatible with everything else which has happened before. And it causes a war. And this is the same thing that's happening now in Russia. They're saying all of a sudden, oh, we've got to um, eliminate this, the threat of NATO on our borders. And they don't really have to eliminate the threat of NATO on their borders. It's just that's the way that the situation is evolving. Do, do you see what I mean? Well, no, with the, with because the no, because a I wouldn't I don't think you can really call the Chinese communist. I mean, they're as authoritarian as Russia is being ruled by Putin. It's basically it's it's rule by party. It's ruled by oligarchy uh, in terms of the rich and the powerful having a say in terms of how the government is run and in both those cases, there's one supreme leader that basically has the say. If, if it has any relationship to anything, it goes back to autocracy and the origin, the, uh, you know, kings that uh, ruled over Europe and Russia and so forth, the emperors in China for you know, hundreds of years. And it really isn't any different from that. Um, and in that kind of an environment, you really don't have the people having any say in terms of what is going on in terms of the future course of society. You know, they're basically taking marching orders and, you know, trying not to step out of line. Um, and be punished by security forces. You know, that's a far cry from, you know, a country that has or exhibits any sort of democratic tendencies. So, you know, I understand Russia's fear because Russia, you know, the idea of people having a say and protesting is fearful to autocrats. And that's why they don't like NATO and they don't like NATO being coming closer because that their idea of how they run things is the antithesis of how Western democracies operate. Okay. So, I mean, you said last time in the last interview that your perspective was kind of anarchist um, my personal one and I, and I think I can I can understand, yeah and I can I can under I can see that point of view coming across here um and I can see that the that the way that the world needs to work in a particular way it kind of automatically makes people want freedom and it automatically makes people kind of reject the idea that there is a I mean if we know that there is a power structure and that it has to to work in a certain kind of way then automatically then you could say, right, okay, I'm going to go to work 
and then in my free time I, I don't have to care about it do I I mean you know you drive yourself mad wouldn't you so the the concept of of, of anarchy is is um is a kind of is that concept really isn't it that enables you to think and and be free and and to think your own thoughts and to um yeah i mean anarchy anarchy is basically the it's the ability to act and speak and behave in a free manner um it's not you know rolling bombs into carriages or things like that it's it's the idea of not only being free but being responsible you know there's yeah. a, a lot of people see anarchy as being irresponsible but in fact it's actually it's being involved in terms of decision making in a way where you know you're taking responsibility for the world that it's that you're building and the reality is most people at this point are not taking any responsibility you know we're killing the planet with fossil fuels you know we have to eliminate yeah. fossil fuels and you know that is made impossible by basically corporations buying off governments and you know nations acting in ways that foster war you know one of the causes yeah. of the conflict in the ukraine is the ukraine actually discovered vast deposits of natural gas in the black sea and this was back in 2013 2014 and the process to develop those had started and in 2014 russia was realizing well if they do that they lose their hold over europe in terms of selling natural gas to europe and so one of yeah. the reasons that the russians moved into crimea is was to basically block off the ukraine from being able to exploit those resources the natural gas in in the black sea and so this whole dynamic of of fossil fuels and the the stranglehold that it has over our economies is the cause of not just climate change but it's the cause of this conflict and it has been the cause of conflicts worldwide you know iraq okay you know? can i iraq oil yeah um while that makes sense from a capitalist perspective if you consider what the the, the communist perspective and say this is the this is the sort of loose nut in the whole machine isn't it that the, the people don't understand is that they have their own agenda and I think that the their agenda is really to counterbalance the capitalist uh just the way that the whole situation is happening Who's because that? of that breakdown of capitalism on the on the china side on the china russia side um you know you have got a an idea that we need to counterbalance because the runaway capitalism in in the early 20th century allowed the breakdown into world war one and the rise of communism then caused the world war ii so you've got this sort of the different agendas on both sides haven't you the the what i'm saying is that the it's the, it's the, really the complexity that this causes, which is giving us problems in 
getting together on issues like the environment, on the economy, on poverty, on um, global welfare, um, you know, medicine. Um, but but you're missing you know, the point. To you're missing the point because I, I think the fact is that the conflict goes much deeper. That it is actually a fundamental mm -hmm. conflict between, like what the basis of the society is that you know russia and china are basically you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend you know kind of relationship you know they really don't have a lot in common except for the fact that they're both autocratic they're both basically dictatorships and you know well, they, what they what they have in common is they want to establish their own preeminence in a world which is multipolar. Yeah, hang on, hang on a minute. Um, okay, for a start, um, Russia's been around since the 1600s and it's older than America and they've had a relationship with China for a long, long time. And I think the two of them understand each other in a way that the US doesn't really understand because no i completely agree i to... completely agree because i think it i think for most americans it's it's difficult to understand how people operate in an autocracy you know it's not in an american quote-unquote nature to live with a king i mean we proved that in 1776 so you know that's Part of that is goes to explain why there is a disconnect in terms of understanding societies where that is the modus operandi, you know? Yeah. Okay. So the, the way that the communist side, if we want to call it that, they see things is that this you this keep calling unity, them you keep you um, keep calling them communists, but they're not communist, they're dictatorships. So I'm not understanding why you're hung up on that label, because I've clearly said before, they're not communists, they're dictatorships. I mean, is that your is that your argument that they're that they're both communists? China, China has a communist government. They have a party that the rules them Chinese Communist Party, but they're the farthest thing from a Marxist Leninist or Marx, a Marxist communist approach. Maybe they're Leninist, but yeah. you know, Lenin was not a well, not, not really. proper communist. Well, what is a proper communist? I mean, the, what they are is that they are part of the way the whole situation is evolving. And Marx has been um, interpreted by various countries over time, including the Soviet Union. And that was one I mean, that, that was the more sort of idealist version of communism, which was kind of closest to the source, really. And then China emerged later, probably about only in the 1950s, really, um, under Chairman Mao. And they, they kind of pursued more of a sort of cultural revolution rather than a kind of it just being about the rights of the worker. They kind of sought to embed the culture of communism into people's um you know cultural lives not just their intellectual lives so what's emerged out of that is um something which i think has moved further away from the west than even the soviet union i mean i think i think everybody could relate to the soviet union during the cold war 
I was I was born in the Cold War, and you know we could relate to the idea of what they were trying to achieve. I mean, we could see the situation was polarized, and that um, you know one side was sort of ideological, and the other side was more kind of practical. But that had evolved out of the way that the situation had evolved, if if you like that the the way, for example, you know, if we want to go all the way back to 1766, 1776, then you can see that the way that the US solves the problem at the time is to break free of European imperialism, i.e. Great Britain, and create their own free state with their own constitution. And that was the best solution that, that could have been had at the time. But on the other hand, then the problem continued in Europe, and it continued to kind of create um, more revolutions and more, if you, if you like, it's because that problem continued, that's what, where communism appeared. So it's not just an ideology which is about creating a, a dictatorship or creating an, or as you say, an autocracy. It's, it's about coping the way that the situation is being managed. And I think that the way that they see it is that that justifies their system of government. So if you like, it's because the West doesn't care. The West just does things however they want to do things. Um, but on the other side, you've got the idea that we're doing all this for a reason. So we could have, um, we could have a war, um, you know, we could have a political purge of the government and it would be justified by what we're what we're achieving overall do you, do you see what i mean about the difference in ideologies here um i'm not sure i mean at the end of the day how does this relate to you know where are we headed with you know the situation with the ukraine and an emerging anthropocene like to go back to kind well, of to bring things full circle, like okay. given the current situation, what happens next? Right. Okay. I've been I've done some notes on this for this for this interview, and okay. So I can see that a certain amount of stuff is happening in terms of the build up, in terms of period of history. So that means everything that's happened before. Then we've got the structure of post-modernity now. And then we're at this point where we have this Ukraine war. Now, I, I think, I've, I've looked at this a lot, and I've looked at the way that this divided um, UN Security Council has, has been created out of the structure of post-modernity. And I think that the only solution to this is going to be in a new period. And I think that is going to be, you know, I think a, a lot of people, perhaps like ourselves, we're looking forward to the Anthropocene as being like um, a new kind of humanistic kind of age where governments actually listen to people and, you know, everything gets done, which is supposed to be done. And they all suddenly realize that, you know, oh, oh, you know, right, let's drop all this stupid stuff. But you can see that there is this, this very complex kind of situation. Perhaps it, um, it keeps the situation stable. Perhaps it's just part of the whole way people think, but at the moment, I'm thinking that the reforms of the UN Security Council that we need to stop the worst problems really from happening and to unite people on an international legal level is not going to be possible if, if we continue to manage the situation according to its needs. And that's what the UN organization is currently doing. 
So perhaps with a new period, obviously the, the structure of post-modernity can only change so much as time goes by uh, until people start to say, oh, hang on a minute, is this, is this now a new period? Is this still post-modernity? And ultimately historians are going to say, well, you know, if you look at the other periods which have happened, you've got to have the end of this period somewhere because otherwise it doesn't fit in with the way that we categorize periods. So um, if you if you look back, and this is why I did look back and, and, and record in the book about the different periods, because then you can see not just the length of each period, but the, the total amount that people have achieved and the way that global society has changed during that period, so that you have got kind of distinct entities, even though it's broken down in a way where each period just represents whatever happened at the time, you can see that there is a pattern moving through these periods. And that's actually what led to the Anthropocene idea in the first place, because it's the only idea that can supersede post-modernity as our concepts of our global present. So it looks like the whole idea of a new period, um, and it gets technical at this point as the reasons why, um, and it's got a lot to do with the way that the, the Pleistocene, the Holocene, and the Anthropocene are being reclassified together as three periods of the Quaternary period, which is the, um, the interglacial cycles, um, which have existed for like millions of years. And then so the Pleistocene is like the, the first of those, and it's where early humans evolved. And then the Holocene is where humans for about the last 11,000 years developed kind of larger civilizations kind of came out of the Stone Age. And then this led to the period of the world order, which we know evolves through ancient Egypt, Persia, Greece, Rome, all these empires and religions, um, you know, into all this, this modern politics. So the Anthropocene is, is being proposed not just as being part of the Holocene or an extension of it, but as actually being a new period in which human um, evolution and, and the, the evolution of life on Earth has really become the same thing. It's become, they merge together. So the Holocene is like humans evolving culture and ideas and, you know, politics and stuff like that. And now we're kind of looking at a, a kind of shift to, a, to an objective kind of way of seeing ourselves against the background of the planet. So well, that is happening. So you're, I mean, you're saying, and you had said this before, that the Anthropocene is something that you know, they're trying to decide whether we're in it. We're already in it. We are it. it. The age of man affecting the earth and changing the climate is basically been where we're at for the past 50 years. And so the Anthropocene is basically the, the geologic age where man is reshaping the planet. And when you look at what's happening in terms of global temperatures, I saw today the temperature in Antarctica is 70 degrees, seven zero, 70 degrees higher than it's supposed to be. Oh, 70 yeah. degrees. You're talking yeah. about major shifts in terms of what's going to happen in terms of ice shelves and in terms yeah. of weather patterns. And this isn't something that's going to happen. We're seeing it. We've been seeing it for the last number of years. And the fact is, it's just accelerating. And it's accelerating at a rate which is beyond control. You know, the IPCC issued um, a report 
a month ago saying that if we don't do, don't do just do something now, it's too late for anything because yeah. we are, this will be the last age for man. It yeah, will yeah. be extinction. Can I ask yeah. you, can I ask you something? Can I, yeah. can I ask yeah. you, okay, do you, do you agree that what, what we've got at the moment is that the structure of geopolitics is evolving as in the way humans have evolved out of history? You know, in terms of the, the structure of societies and all, the, all this subjective, you know, kind of cultural and political thinking. And then we've got the objective timescale in which events are happening. It is actually more correctly measured against the background of the planet. So people in politics will still be saying, oh, no, don't worry about that. You know, this is not happening yet. Um, we, we just want what we want to happen. Um, you know, on both sides, on all sides of this, this politics, you know, they, they all want to. Yeah, they keep achieve. kicking, they keep kicking the can down the road, you know, the, like, yeah. for example, like, uh, I know, uh, like, three to five years ago, you know, it drove me crazy, because people, you know, would say, you know, we don't have to worry about uh, 1.5 degree temperature change until 2100. And that was idiotic. I said it then. And the proof is we're already at 1.5 and right. it's accelerating. And now you have feedback loops kicking in because of methane releases and it's even more accelerating release of uh, more increasing use of fossil fuels. And then add on top of that, you have conflict and, and wars that even so, use more. So so now what we've got now is the scientists are saying, look, this is what needs doing, isn't it? That, that's the shift to the sort of objective point of view. But the, the Anthropocene Working Group, who is the, the body, the scientific body that are concerned with investigating and proving this argument before the International Union of um, Geological Sciences, they are not going to be able to do this until, until late 2022, 2023. So I think people should... I mean, if, if we're talking to the public at large, then we need to start preparing for this Anthropocene I, I, you know, idea to become a reality when they do prove that, because it will reclassify. What, what, so what do, you, what do you mean preparing for the Anthropocene? Well, so I, mean, I mean, okay, I mean, you, you have got um, that the idea will be proven scientifically uh, towards the end of this year, next year, that, that sort of timescale. Um, by the actual scientists within their own, you know, with their own community, because they are investigating, um, you know, samples of geology in places where the earth shows change in the chemical composition of the environment over time. So that means that we can see the kind of purity of the ancient period, and then we see the, the kind of the dirt of the industrial period, and then we start to see the modern chemicals appear, and then we start to see the nuclear um, radioactive deposits. So we can we can appreciate how humans are now technologically in this position to be kind of in control of the planet. Do you, do you see what I mean? That, that's well, the sort I of. Mean, I mean, it would really take a. I think an alien to 
have to go through that process to see that. I mean, yeah, but, I mean we've, we've, but we've already fundamentally done that and scientists have already said we're basically killing the world based on the use of fossil fuels and the burning and, and the carbon dioxide. So yeah. the point is governments are not listening. And yeah, governments have not had this final kind of proof come in yet from the governments. Board. You know what? The, it's not going. How is it going to affect things? Governments are not going to listen to a scientific study. Well, they, they are. Yes, if it's their scientific body. And that's the problem. It's taking a long time for this argument to build up through the scientific establishment. So wow. some people are saying that we are living in the Anthropocene now. We are. And what I okay, what I'm saying is that is that the Anthropocene is going to become the new term for our global concept of the present, but it won't officially happen until the International Union of Geological Sciences accepts the proposal from the from the Anthropocene Working Group, because then that will, will go to governments and governments will say, okay, yes, so okay. So our scientists are saying now that we live in this age and, and this is what needs doing and this is proven and, and they can't really act until it's proven. And it sounds really stupid, but at the moment, currently, we are still technically living in the postmodern Holocene. But if you think about it, if you're the UN and you're looking at the way that events are happening, you're thinking, oh, that actually that's good because then it means that the political agenda that exists now is not clashing with the, the new age yet. And if that was to happen, then that would create a whole new different type of problem. So what we've got now is a situation that we can manage through the existing political cha um, channels. So you've how got, is, you know, how is the how is the current situation not clashing with the planet? Uh -huh, yeah, well, yeah. Um, okay, B because of the way that the situation is being uh, managed. We, we have a hell of a lot of, of this complexity in the subjective political um, way that everything's being done. And, and we, we, we started with that really. Um, so at the moment, basically, I, um, I believe the UN is kind of watching this happen and they are guiding it towards a successful re resolution rather than I mean, if you consider the problem uh, first was just to avoid World War III, they have got to you know, gently manage this situation and kind of just guide it slowly towards a point where I think the world will cope with a better paradigm and it will cope with the Anthropocene paradigm because it has to, because then it's, then it's a proven um, fact. So that, that's really, that is where we're going, is, is we're going to have to get basically from where we are now to a situation where I, th I think there's going to be reform at the UN Security Council in the end. And I think there is, there, obviously, there's always going to be reform at the UN. Um, and there's going to be changes to the organization structure. Um, but it's, it can only come really as, as the situation is being managed at the time. Do you, do you see what I mean? That's the, that's the problem with it. Yeah. I mean, I. I uh... I don't know. I don't. I don't see a lot of uh, <clears throat> potential for change, given kind of the breakdown of um, international dynamics, uh, given Putin's invasion of the Ukraine and what that's done in terms of um, the international order. 
but yeah. uh, we've run on a lot uh, longer and, you know, maybe we can uh, go farther at another, uh, another time. Uh, if what's your, um, if you want to share your uh, link, what is the uh, address they should look up for your YouTube you mentioned uh, or your website? Okay, um, I'm just Neil Pitts on YouTube, but I've got a website which is um, Neil Pitts, all one word, dot website two dot me, me. So that's my website's got a list a link to all these interviews and a list of things which I'm doing at the moment. And it's got my current um, events and it's got recent events. So that's well worth looking at if you want to look at how the how the situation's developing with me because I get new information in all the time and I'm always updating the way that we are understanding the situation. So this is what I've got to currently at the moment. And I think that's pretty accurate for the UN to be, maybe they've been watching this, this, um, this Russia thing for a while and thinking, oh, they're gonna do it, they're not gonna do it. You know, we don't know, we, you know, because obviously the UN, they've got to be above everyone and they've got to be watching the US and equally the UK. So they just kind of monitor things and, and then they apply you know, reasonable kind of discourse, you know, with the, with the powers involved and they, you know, we have a meeting, we have a, you know, and things move forward. And this is what people don't see about politics is really the way the world is moving forward. It's moving forward very slowly, but on a big scale. Mm. Well, we'll have to see. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks very much.